You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. And uh, as you're doing that, if you'd please open with me in your Bibles to book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Uh, currently on Sunday mornings, we are going through a series in which we're studying verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and the title of this study is The Pursuit of Happiness. The reason we titled it that is because here in this letter, we have a letter which was written in dark circumstances. It was written while Paul was in jail, but yet this letter kind of bursts forth with uh, joy. And so as we're studying this series, we're talking about the pursuit of happiness, we're talking about the happiness that we all desire, the joy that we were all made for, a joy that's bigger than our circumstances, how Paul had it and how we can have it as well. So if you'd please bow your heads with me, let's go ahead and pray as we open up God's word. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is full of grace towards us. We thank you for the gospel Lord, that in Jesus you have made us righteous. You have given us a new name and a new identity and a new future. And Lord, we want to walk in the fullness of that. We want to walk in this newness of life that you've given us. And so we pray this morning that you'd speak to us from your word. Let us understand the message that you have in there for us. And let us put it into practice in our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know there are some things which money cannot buy. Some great things, actually. The Beatles reminded us that money can't buy you love. Uh, We also have a well-known saying that money cannot buy happiness. The author Claire Luce famously said, Well, money cannot buy you happiness, but it can make you awfully comfortable while you're being miserable. One person said, Money can't buy you happiness, but money can buy you jet skis. And have you ever seen an unhappy person riding a jet ski? No, you haven't. And that's a really good point, actually. But the problem with jet ski rides is that eventually they come to an end, don't they? Eventually you run out of gas or the weather gets bad or you just get too old to ride the jet ski. And so no matter how fun jet skis are, like everything else, they can only provide momentary happiness. They don't provide that full, true, lasting happiness which our hearts really desire. When you lay down at night, even after a jet ski ride, you're still the same person. And so no money can't buy true and lasting happiness, not even with jet skis. Another thing that money can't buy is physical fitness. I don't know if you ever noticed, but there are some very wealthy people out there who are very out of shape. See, if they could pay someone else to work out and eat healthy for them, they totally would. But the problem is you can't. No one else can do it for you. There's no shortcut to it. Another thing that money can't buy you is it can't buy you spirituality. A vibrant, dynamic relationship with God. That's something that money can't buy you. You can't purchase it and no one else can do it for you. There's no shortcut to it. It's been said that the best things in life are free. Now, I don't actually think that's true. I don't agree with that because here's why. Although the things I've just mentioned are things which cannot be purchased with money, that doesn't mean they're free. It doesn't mean they're just handing that stuff out. It doesn't mean you can just have it, right? There's a cost involved, even if it's not a monetary cost. If you want to have good relationships, there's a cost. It takes time, energy. It takes creativity. There's an emotional cost involved. 
If you want to have physical fitness, there's certainly a cost involved with that. If you want to have really anything that's worth having, there's a cost involved. And the same is true of spirituality. The book of Philippians that we've been studying here is a letter which was written by the Apostle Paul. He, was, he wrote it to a church which he himself started when he was a missionary about 10 years before he wrote this letter. It was during his second missionary journey. And now as Paul writes this letter 10 years after having started the church in Philippi, he's in a very different situation. No longer is he a freewheeling missionary going wherever he wants and doing whatever he pleases. No, he is on lockdown. He is literally in jail in Rome because of his Christian faith. And there's a good chance, there's a great possibility that he is going to be executed. Currently, he is chained to Roman guards 24 hours a day. That means no privacy. It means that he can't go to the bathroom by himself. He can't sleep by himself. He can't have private conversations. It's a very difficult situation, you can imagine. And yet, although his circumstances are very bad, Paul is doing very good. He has hope. And that hope is translated into joy. The reason for his hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Jesus Christ did and what it means for him. And Paul is writing to the Philippians this letter, and his purpose in writing is to help them understand that if you really consider the gospel, if you really get it, if you really understand what the gospel means for you, what Jesus did for you, and what it means for you, invariably it will result in unwavering joy in the depth of your soul no matter what situations life may throw at you. That is the great message of this book, that true and lasting joy, the happiness that you desire, the joy which you so want can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in our section today, we're going to be talking about one of the most important keys to joy. That's kind of what we've been looking at each week as we go through this book. Uh, we've been highlighting one point. This week, the important key to experiencing joy in the gospel, the joy that comes from the gospel, is this. You've got to work it out. You've got to work it out. The title of today's message is Working It Out. And here's what we're going to be looking at in this section. Here's our outline for you outline likers. Uh, number one, working out what he has worked in. Number two, we're going to talk about how to shine bright. And number three, we're going to talk about risking it all. So working out what he works in, how to shine bright, and risking it all. Let's begin by reading, starting in chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now also, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul begins this section with the word therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, what do you got to ask? You got to ask, what's that therefore, therefore, right? So whenever you see that word uh, in the Bible, what it should do is should heighten your attention to what's going to come next. Because whenever you see the word therefore, what's happening in the Bible is that the writer is transitioning from having told you some great truth. Now he's transitioning to what you need to do, what you should do, what we must do with that truth as a result of that thing being true. In other words, doctrine should always lead to action. Information should always lead to transformation. Information about God should always lead to transformation of our lives. 
If what you learn on Sunday doesn't change your Monday, then something's not right. Uh, The purpose of our gathering here is not just to gather some information, get some interesting tidbits or insights. The purpose is to be transformed as we open up God's word and look upon the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is true, then it should change the way that we live. And it absolutely is true. So what Paul is talking about, what Paul has been talking about before this, in the first part of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, he's been talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. He's been talking about the gospel. And specifically, he talked about how incredible, how stunning, how amazing it is, this act that Jesus did, unprecedented in all of history, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the comfort and beauty of heaven And he came to a cursed world and he took on a dying body. He traded glory for shame. He traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He traded a throne in heaven for a cross in Jerusalem. And although he was God, he emptied himself of all of his rights, all of his privileges as God in order to become like us in every way so that by doing so he might save us. By living the life that we should have lived, And by dying the death that we should have died in our place. And so therefore, because that's true, what should we do in response? Here's what Paul says. Therefore, because this is true, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now what Paul's not saying is work for your own salvation. He's not saying work as to earn your own salvation. No, that would be in complete contradiction to everything that the Bible teaches about the nature of salvation and how you get it. Uh, We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us. So what is Paul saying? What he's saying is, you've got to work it out. Like when you go to the gym and you exercise your God-given muscles, he's encouraging you to exercise your God-given salvation. He's encouraging us to put forth real effort real effort in living out the new life that we have been given in Christ and living out that new life in every area, every aspect of our lives. Work out your own salvation. With an emphasis on own, here's why. Because no one else can walk with God for you. No one else can do it for you. This is one of those things that you have to do yourself. Pastors, teachers, godly friends, Christian parents are all great and they, we benefit from their roles in our lives. But at the end of the day, Christianity is about a relationship with God. And there are a lot of things that you can delegate. In fact, right, a good leader is somebody who delegates well. There are a lot of things that you can outsource to other people. But the thing about relationships is you can't outsource a relationship. You can't delegate a relationship. In my relationship with my wife, I can't delegate date night, right? Like if I was to tell my wife, you know, Rosemary, I'm, I'm juggling a lot of responsibility right now. I've got a lot on my plate. And so I've hired an assistant to help me with some of the work. This is Steve. And uh, Steve, from now on, he's going to be taking over for me in the date night department. He's super qualified. He's really a gentleman and he's going to do a great job. You're really going to like this. No, uh, that's just not how it works, right? Uh, you can't do that. You can't delegate date night. You can't outsource a relationship. And the same is true in your relationship with God. Other people can help you, but in the end, it's your relationship to have. No one else can do it for you. You've got to work out your own salvation. 
This is why Paul says, as you've done in my presence, I want you to also do it in my absence as well. In other words, your faith can't just work when you're being supervised, when somebody's watching. You've got to own it for yourself. It's got to become intrinsic to you. Last Sunday, we had a baptism out at Gaynor Lake. It was great. We had five people from church here get baptized. And some of the people who got baptized were uh, youth who have grown up in this church, which is a beautiful thing. That's one of our goals here as a church. The kids who grow up in this church would come to a real and living faith of their own, that they would make that transition, that they would turn that corner from having their parents' faith to having their own faith, making it their own. You know, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy is a really interesting book if you understand its context. See, a lot of people think Deuteronomy, brutal, right? You know what Deuteronomy means, that word? It means the second law or the repetition of the law. In other words, you've already heard it once, and now we're going to tell it to you again, right? It's like a really long book in which the law is repeated. Doesn't sound super interesting, does it? But it is interesting if you understand the context. The context is this. It was a speech which Moses gave to a new generation at the end of his life right before he died. This is the generation whose parents were the ones who saw God do miraculous things. Their parents followed God, you know, as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Their parents walked with God. Their parents were the ones who saw the Nile River turn to blood. They saw the Red Sea parted and they crossed over on dry ground. The, their parents were the ones to whom God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Their parents were the ones who were fed with manna in the wilderness and saw water come out of rocks, right? Their parents walked with God. And now here they are and that generation's gone. Their parents' generation has now passed away. They are the kids of the parents who walked with God. And Moses is about to leave too. There's only two people who are going to be left from that previous generation. And Deuteronomy is about the new generation taking ownership of their faith for themselves. That's why the law had to be repeated. And over and over, Moses says to the new generation there in Deuteronomy, your parents and your grandparents walked with the Lord. They followed the Lord. But now you have to make a decision. You need to make a decision today. Are you going to follow the Lord? It's not enough that they did. You've got to make that choice too. And more than once Moses says, Behold, I lay before you today a choice. A choice between following the Lord or going your own way. He says, I lay before you today life and blessing or death and curse. If you will choose to follow God, it will be life and blessing to you. If you choose to go your own way and turn your back on God. It will bring ruin. It will bring a curse upon you, but it's your choice to make. In the end, it's not enough that your parents believed in God. It's not enough that your parents walked with God and worshiped God. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to worship him yourself because no one else can walk with God for you. It's like working out and getting fit, right? If you could pay somebody else to do it, probably most of us would, but you can't because it's only you doing the jumping jacks that's going to burn your calories. No one else can burn your calories for you. And as a Christian, if you want to grow, no one else can do it for you. You've got to do it on your own. You've got to own it. No one else can read your Bible for you. No one else can, in your place, join a community group or volunteer to serve in some capacity or go on a mission trip or give to missions or serve at an outreach. No one else can do those things for you. And the question is, how healthy, how strong do you want to be? You've got to own this. See, Paul is encouraging us to put real effort into our own spiritual growth. 
And he tells us to do it with fear and trembling. Now understand, he's not talking about being motivated by fear. What he's saying this. We should tread lightly on ground that is stained in blood. Tread lightly on ground that is stained in blood. In other words, we should have a deep awe and a deep sense of reverence when we approach the cross, when we consider our salvation, when we come to Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, understand you are standing on holy ground. This is ground stained in blood. It, it was, you're standing on ground stained in blood which Jesus shed for you to purchase you and to pay your debt. He paid your debt, not with gold or silver or any precious thing, but with something much more precious, with his own blood. And so be filled with a sense of awe and reverence and realize what a great cost was paid in order to make us his sons and daughters. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer implores us. He says, do not trample underfoot the blood shed for you by Jesus. He says, don't take it lightly. Don't take it lightly by not giving him all of yourself because he gave you all of himself. There's another side to this, though. He begins by saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, if you've embraced the gospel, God is at work within you, and he is tirelessly working. He never sleeps. He never falters. He never forgets. He cannot be deflected from his course, and he will never fail to achieve his purposes in you or through you. And so you got to ask the question, wait, so now which one is this, okay? Is it, who's the one who needs to do the work here? Who does the work? Is it me or is it God? And the answer, of course, is both. They're two sides of the same coin. John Stott put it very well. He, he writes it this. He says, the Christian life is a blend of rest and activity. It's not alternating from one to the other, but it's a blend in which at the same time, the Christian is both Resting confidently and pursuing actively. See, we are to do as much as we can, as if everything depends on us, and at the same time trust and know that God is sovereign and he is in control. Now again, let me be clear. This is not about how to receive salvation. This is not about working to earn salvation. This is about what to do once you have received salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not something you can earn by working for it. It's a gift that God gives you and you receive it by faith. But once you have received salvation, now it's time to work it out practically, to work out what God has worked in you. One author put it this way, and I think this is so key and brilliant. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. See, those are two different things. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. That's so key. One thing that helped me to understand this is to understand that uh, when I came to find out that the word that Paul uses for work out is actually a mining term, like for miners who dig in the earth. And what do miners do? Right? They dig in the earth to do what? To extract what's already in there. To extract the valuable resources they don't put the resources in there. God puts them in there. They just dig out. They bring to the surface what God has already put in. And that's a great description of what it means to work out your salvation, which God has worked in you. You're extracting, you're bringing to the surface what God has worked in you as if you're a miner. 
You're, you're doing, you're bringing to the surface what he has worked in you through his work in you of making you a new person in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible tells us this, that in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That God has called you, that God has a calling and a purpose for your life. He wants to use you in this world to do his work. Your job is to work that out. That salvation that he's worked in you, you get to work it out. But as you do that, understand that it's not just like you're on your own and you better not mess up. God is going to give you the ability to do it. And he's going to give you the desire to do the things which he has called you to do. In other words, God's work in your life isn't just about transforming your actions. It's also about changing your will, changing your desires, changing the things that you love, the things that you want, the things that you desire to pursue so that they match his desires, so that they are what he wants. See, the idea is this, that since God is doing such a great transforming work in us, then we ought to do all that we can to live it out. In other words, don't just pray God, help me know you better. Spend time reading the Bible. Crack it open. Hide God's word in your heart. Don't just pray, God, give me a better marriage. Actually take steps to have a better marriage, right? Serve your spouse in practical ways. Go out together. Do things to make your marriage better. Don't just pray, God, use my life. Don't just pray that. Join a ministry. Serve in an outreach. Give to missions. Don't just pray, God, I want to be pure Turn off that show, right? Like, stop watching, stop looking at those websites. Get some accountability in your life. You've got to get radical. That's the point. Don't just pray, God, I wish I had more Christian friends. Join a community group. Invite someone to coffee. Be friendly, right? Pray and trust God with your whole heart. But rise up and do everything in your power to get it done. So Charles Spurgeon, he says this. He says, there are some people who take the grace of God to be a kind of opium which, uh, with which they drug themselves to sleep. God works in us, they say. Therefore, there is nothing for us to do. He says, bad reasoning, false conclusion. God works, says the text. Therefore, we must work because God works in us. God's sovereign, someone might say. So I don't need to give offerings to the church. I mean, if God wants to provide for the church, his finances, then he can do that. He's sovereign. He doesn't need me. Someone might say, well, God's sovereign, of course, so I don't need to be involved in mission work. I don't need to share my faith with people I know because God's sovereign. If he wants people to know him, he'll, he'll work it out. He's sovereign. God's sovereign, someone might say. If God wants me to grow and change and, and change certain aspects of my life, then he'll make it happen. It's not something I need to worry about. Spurgeon would say, bad reasoning, false conclusion. We must work out because God has worked in. Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 25 about a wealthy man who went away on a long journey and he left his servants in charge of his money. And one of his servants he entrusted with five talents. Now, I was curious what a talent is. Looked it up. Here's the deal. A talent was about 20 years wages for a laborer. So, did some quick math. And uh, so that's a lot of money. That's that's like $100,000, $150,000 in our money that this guy would have had if he had five talents. That's a lot. To another servant, he entrusted 10 talents. And to a third servant, he entrusted one talent. 
So the master went away for several years, and when he returned, he called his servants together, and he asked them to give account of what they had done with what he had given them. And the first two reported that they had taken what he had given them, and they had invested it, and they had brought back a good return on those investments. And the master told them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. You will now be entrusted with more. And then he said, Enter into the joy of your master. But the third servant reported that he had not invested the money that was entrusted to him. Rather, he had buried it in the ground so that it wouldn't get lost. And the master replied and said, Why didn't you do anything with the stuff I gave you? And the man replied, and his reply is really classic. He says, I knew that you're a powerful man. You're a powerful man. You reap where you did not sow, and you gather where you scattered no seed. And so I did nothing. Here's what the man was saying, essentially saying, I know that you're so powerful, you have so much money already, you're so powerful that you don't need me to work for you. You can harvest without sowing. You can gather without planting seeds. That's how powerful you are. You don't need me to do anything for you. So I did nothing with what you gave me and because, hey, but hey, I didn't lose it. At least I didn't lose it, right? And the master was so upset that he cast him out of his presence. Now, do you see what that parable has to do with what we're talking about right now? You see, those who take God's sovereignty as an excuse for inaction are like the lazy servant in that parable. They say, God is so powerful, he's so sovereign, he doesn't need me to do anything, so I'm not going to bother using the time, the talents, the resources that he has given me. I won't bother investing them. I won't bother using them for things which I know he cares about. I'll just sit on them. I'll bury them in the ground because after all, he's powerful, he's sovereign. If he wants to do something, he doesn't need me to do it for him. God says, no, that's not the right attitude. The time, talents, and resources that he's given you, he wants you to put those things to use for his purposes. You see, that's what it means to be a steward. In church, we talk about stewardship. That's what the word means. It means that the things you have aren't really yours at the end of the day. They're really God's. And one day, he's going to call you in and ask you to give an account for what you did with what he gave you. Now, it's not an account like he's going to, you know, like your salvation depends on it, but he's going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? Did you take what I gave you and use it to further his work, to further his kingdom, or did you just sit on it? So let me ask you, what has God entrusted you with? What are the time, talents, and resources that God has given you? And are you using them in such a way that at the end of the day, he would say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Or do you risk being more like the third servant who who used the sovereignty of God as an excuse for inaction? We're called to work out what God has worked in. In other words, like the battle belongs to God, victory is promised, but you've still got to fight. That brings us to our second point. And that is how to shine bright. Let's read from verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul was in jail when he wrote this letter. And yet what's so surprising about this letter is that whereas most people, we we would find it very easy to grumble and complain in such a situation— 
Paul is not like that. Paul is full of joy because he's trusting in God's providence. He has a hope which is bigger than his circumstances, and that is different, isn't it? It stands out. Do you think that it stood out to the Roman guards? I mean, they probably watched a lot of, a lot of prisoners over their time, right? I mean, there are a lot of people in and out of that jail, probably, you know, waiting to appeal to Caesar. So they've watched a lot of inmates over the years. Do you think that Paul's faith in God, do you think that the fact that he was characterized by joy, do you think that stood out to them? Absolutely. I mean, how could it not? We even read at the end of this letter, we've talked about it already in this study, that many of the guards who were watching Paul were turning to faith in Jesus as a result of having spent time with him. Now let me ask you this. Do you think Paul would have been effective as an evangelist to those Roman guards if he would have been a grumbler? If he would have spent his time disputing with others and complaining about why God allowed these things to happen to him? If he would have done that, he would have been, guess what? Just like every other prisoner in jail because that's what prisoners do right? When you're joyful in jail, that, that's what stands out. When you complain in jail, you're just like everybody else. And you know what the guards would have said about him? They would have said, yeah, Paul's a Christian, but he's no different than anybody else we meet in here. I mean, that's how everybody is. They all complain like that. But because Paul was so radically different in his attitude and in his behavior, he stood out from the crowd. And here's what Paul realized, that he wants us as Christians to keep in mind. That your microphone is always on. Your microphone is always on. So I wear this wireless microphone on Sundays, and I'm super paranoid about it, right? Because I'm super paranoid that I'm going go to go into the bathroom, and the microphone's going to be on. Or like I'm going to be saying some, you know, remark to somebody that I don't want everybody to hear. And then it's going to go out over the speakers, and everybody's going to be like, oh, you know? Uh, so I'm super worried. I check it like about a thousand times before I speak to make sure my microphone's not on because I don't want to hear you guys hear me singing out of tune and stuff and all that. So what Paul's telling us is that as Christians, imagine it like this. You're rigged up with one of these guys, a wireless microphone, and it's always on. Do you think you'd live differently? Do you think you'd talk differently? Do you think you'd act differently if you knew that people were watching and observing and listening? Because here's the deal, they are. Because they know, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, they know. They know that you go to church. They know that you're the Christian guy at the office. People see your Facebook. They know what you're up to. They know you're a Christian. Don't forget, your microphone is always on. And that's not a bad thing. Let me tell you this. That is a good thing. It's a good thing to have a microphone. Let me tell you. Because if you're working out the salvation that God has worked in you, then you're going to shine like lights in this world. And that's a good thing. You're going to stand out. You're going to be a straight line in a crooked world. Jesus spoke about shining like lights in the world. And it's interesting because in one place, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking to a crowd. And he declares to the crowd, I am the light of the world, right? Okay, but in another time, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, you guys are the light of the world. So which one is it? Is it that he's the light of the world, or is it that we are the light of the world? Now, of course, the answer is both. But there's a difference. We are different kinds of lights in the same way that the sun is a kind of light and the moon is a kind of light, but they're different kinds of lights, right? The sun is a source of light and the moon simply reflects the light of the sun. It doesn't have its own light. It reflects the light of the sun. 
But you know what? There's an interesting phenomenon that takes place sometimes, isn't there? An eclipse takes place. And what's an eclipse? An eclipse is where our world comes in between the sun and the moon, the source of the light and the reflector of the light. And when that happens, the moon ceases to reflect the light of the sun. And so it is with us. We are only lights in this world in so much as we reflect and shine the light of the glory of Jesus. But if we have an eclipse... Right? If we allow the world to come in between us and God, we cease to shine that light. If we become crooked and perverse ourselves, then we're just like everybody else. We no longer stand out. Think about it this way. Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men. If you're going to be a fisher of men, you've got to do two things, at least two things. Number one, you've got to keep the boat in the water. And number two, you've got to keep the water out of the boat. And that's what we're called to do. Keep the boat in the water, but keep the water out of the boat. We want to influence without being influenced. We want to become thermostats, right, who change the temperature of the room that we're in, rather than thermometers who just take on the temperature of the room that we're in. You've got to keep the boat in the water. Do you ever see fishing boats in people's driveways? They look super silly, right? You're going to fire that baby up, gun it, it's not going to do anything. And you're certainly not going to catch any fish, you know, on your street in your neighborhood just with your boat on a trailer in your driveway. Uh, And likewise, if you want to reach people who don't know Jesus, well, you've got to go and be around some people who don't know Jesus. You've got to get a little bit wet, right? You've got to put your boat out in the water. But you've got to keep the water out of the boat, If in your attempt to catch some fish, your boat fills up with water, then you're going to sink and you're going to drown, right? And it's not going to be good. And there are plenty of people who, in the name of getting their boat out in the water, have totally sunk their boat because they've just let all the water into the boat. Some of us, some of you probably, need to get your boat out in the water a little bit more. Like a flashlight doesn't do a lot of good in broad daylight, right? You've got to go into a dark place. You need to be more missionally minded in regard to your neighbors and your friends and your family and coworkers. But others of us, you do great at that part, right? You get your boat out in the water. In fact, maybe your boat's way out in the water and it's about to sink because you've let too much water into the boat. In other words, you've been influenced by the world in ungodly ways more than you have influenced your world for Jesus. So this is Paul's encouragement to us. Remember, your microphone's always on. Be a light in the world. Be a straight line in a crooked generation. Reflect the light of Jesus' glory in how you live your life and watch out for anything that would get in the way of that. Be a thermostat, not a thermometer, and keep the boat in the water, but keep the water out of the boat. How's that for like 50 metaphors right there? Boom. I hope you wrote those all down. You can draw some pictures or something. All right, next one, final point, risking it all. In the final verses, Paul is now going to give us three examples of what it looks like to live this way that he's been talking about, this way that he's been encouraging the Philippians to live in light of the gospel. He's going to give us three examples of people who are doing that in different ways. The first one is himself. The second one is Timothy. And the third one is Epaphroditus. So let's read from verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may, be found, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul, has been, Paul here is describing 
uh, the kind of life that leads to true joy and lasting joy. The first example he gives of a life that's lived this way in response to the gospel is his own life. He says, if you guys continue in the faith, if you hold fast to the word of life, the gospel, it's going to bring me great joy because I, know that everything, I will know that everything I did, everything I gave up, everything I sacrificed, that it was totally worth it. Paul uses this vivid metaphor here of pouring out his life like a drink offering. This is an image from the Old Testament sacrificial system in which they would pour expensive wine onto the altar as an offering to God. And Paul is saying, that's what I did with my life. I poured out my life. I gave my time, my energy. I gave the best years of my life. I dedicated them to the work of God and the spreading of the gospel, planting churches and pastoring people. And he says, ultimately, I ended up in jail for it. I may even pay the ultimate price for it, but if I were to know that you continue in your faith, that would bring me great joy. Either way, it's worth it because I did it for God, but it would bring me so much joy to see that you guys continue in your faith, that my sacrifice was worth it. So the first example of a life that's lived in light of the gospel is Paul's own life, a life that was poured out, a life that was given completely in service to God through service to others. The next example Paul gives us is the life of Timothy, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul says, there's no one I've ever met who's quite like Timothy. Whereas everybody else out there is concerned with their own interests, I have never met someone who so genuinely, uh, genuinely cares and is concerned with the welfare of others. This is the second example of what this kind of life looks like that Paul's talking about. A life lived in response to the gospel. Working out your salvation. Living as a light in the world. To truly care about other people more than you care about yourself. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Paul talked about it in the section we studied last week. That Jesus, although he was God, he emptied himself. He considered your needs more than his own comfort. And he lived out the gospel. It's something that we get to do that same thing which Jesus did for us. We get to do it for the sake of others. And finally, he talks about this third man, Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he had been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, nearly to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus, you kind of put... The together the puzzle and figure out what's going on. Here's the deal. He was a person from the church in Philippi who the Philippians had sent to visit Paul in jail. And now he's been with Paul for a time. He was there to encourage him. And now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, back to the Philippians, and he's sending this letter, which we're reading, in his hand to hand deliver to the Philippians. 
Now, something we know from chapter 4 of this letter is that the Philippians not only sent Epaphroditus to visit Paul, but they sent him with a monetary gift, a gift of money, which Epaphroditus delivered to Paul. The Philippians had taken up an offering to bless Paul and to provide for any of his needs that he might have had. It was actually common in those days that if you were in jail, that you had to pay for your own cost of being in jail. And so they, they're helping him out here. They're giving him some money. But either on his way down to see Paul or while he was already in Rome, we read that Epaphroditus became ill. In fact, he became so sick that he almost died. And Paul says this phrase in verse 30, Epaphroditus risked his life to complete your service to me. He risked his life for the cause of Christ. And Paul holds up Epaphroditus as the third example of what it means to live a sold-out life, to be all in, to give your whole life to him who gave his life for you. And Paul says, I want you to honor such people, hold them in high regard, people who are willing to take risks to do God's work, people who are willing to pay a cost to do the work of Christ. Paul wants us to see these three examples of what it looks like to live out the gospel. First of all, he says, Living out the gospel looks like laying down your life on the altar like he did, like Paul did. Living out the gospel means truly considering the needs of others above your own comfort like Timothy did. Living out the gospel means being willing to take risks and pay a price for the cause of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ like Epaphroditus did. Because ultimately, guess what? These are the things that Jesus did for us. Each of those things he did for us. And so in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus did for you, in light of who you have become in him, now work out your salvation and shine like lights in the world. And as you do that, not only will you bring glory to God, but you will have joy. Amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you that when we really understand the gospel invariably it fills our hearts with hope and that hope translates into joy and lord we ask that you would help us to work out our salvation in our lives as we see in the life of paul who poured out his life and timothy who truly cared for others more than himself and in, in light of epaphroditus who was willing to go to great extents for the work of Christ. Lord, would you help us to work out our salvation in our life? Thank you, Lord, that ultimately it is you who is working in us both to do and to will for your good pleasure. We thank you, Lord, that it's for your good pleasure that you've saved us, not because we deserve it, but because you're good. Lord, I want to pray for anyone here today who, on that first point we talked about, they, they need to understand that they need to have their own faith. Maybe there's someone here today who would say, you know, that's me. I've, I've been kind of riding the coattails of somebody else. I've been kind of um, tagging along on my spouse's faith or on my friend's faith or on my parent's faith. Lord, would today be the day when they say, it will be my faith. I will follow Jesus. I will give my life to him. I pray you do that work and that they would pray in their heart and say, yes, Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner, but thank you for the cross. Thank you for that blood-stained ground of Calvary where on the cross you paid my price with your blood. And now I receive that. I ask you to be my Lord. I pray for all of us here today that our hearts would be committed to you.
in such a way. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.